Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Please have a seat, and uh, we'll continue. We are in our series in the book of Revelation. We've been in this series for a number of weeks. We'll be in it through the fall, so we'll wrap up right at the end of the year, and then we will have the beginning of the year and a new series coming. And remember, the purpose of this series is blessed. And I put a question mark because we talk about this every week. Most people, when they read the book of Revelation, they don't think of blessing. They think of like tragedy and judgment and awful. And yet when John writes the book of Revelation, he says in the first chapter and the last chapter of the book, this book is to be written so that you can know how to be happy, how to be blessed. That you can see the purpose of life, live in it, and understand what a real blessing is, what a real blessing it is to know God and know his purposes so that you can go through life. And so that's what we've been looking at. Remember, we also look at every week, I don't want to forget this, we look in Acts. Because again, with the book of Revelation, most of the time people argue. They get in fights. They don't see it as a book of happiness and blessing, but something to argue about. And Jesus told his disciples when they asked him about the end times and when is the kingdom finally going to come and all the evil's done away with and things are made new, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the periods the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, you're not going to know. And we run around and everybody's trying to figure it out and everybody wants to know times and periods. Listen, you can know the character of God. You can know about the things of God. You can kind of know what's going to happen, but you cannot know the times or the periods. I didn't say that. Jesus did. So don't come after me and be like, Matt, how dare you? This pastor I listen to online or this guy or that guy. I didn't say it. Jesus himself said it to his disciples, okay? That you're not going to know that. So don't worry about it. When you're thinking about, is this the time? And is Russia rising up? And are they going to attack? And is that Gog and Magog, which we'll look at later? No. We don't know. Let's focus on what we do know, which is what Jesus said in the next part. He says, you won't know the times or periods, but you will receive power. Power to do what? To have the Holy Spirit enter you through a relationship with Jesus Christ and then to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. So you're not going to know all the times and periods. You're not going to be able to figure out life. You're not going to know the right investments to make so you have a great retirement. All that may not happen. But I can tell you this, God has left you here because he desires for you to witness to others of the reality of who he is and the hope that humans can have in a world that's a disaster. That's the message. And he's going to take you home someday, either before he comes or he's going to take you home when he comes. That's, That's secure. We don't have to worry about that. And so we've looked at that. Now this week, Here are some of the series titles we've gone through. You can go back and look at those. Last week, we talked about beasts and lambs and the idea that the lamb that was slain, we see the picture of him going into this chapter that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 14 and all the beasts that are happening, the dragon and the two beasts. And we talked about, are you a beast or are you a lamb? Do you live life pragmatically so that you can get what you want and use things to your advantage? Because that's what beasts do that we looked at instead of the lamb who lays down his life. And we looked at that, and you can look back at it. This week, I want to talk about perseverance. So once you've chosen to put your life and put your hands into the camp of the Lamb, and you've said, I want to give my life, I want to make the great exchange of my life, Lord, I surrender because you gave your life. So I surrender my life to you, and as a result of doing that, you promise that you will give me life, not only eternal, but you'll help me know how to live life abundantly here. And the abundant life is not the picture that 
we want necessarily. All the apostles lived an abundant life and most of them were martyred for their faith. And so we've got to rethink what real blessing is and we have to rethink what perseverance is. We'll look at this this morning. But most people, when they think about perseverance, it's kind of like a scowl on your face and I just have to get through it. That is not the Bible definition of perseverance at all. The Bible's definition of perseverance is that you find joy and satisfaction and happiness and blessing through the mess and in the mess. It is a different picture There's no other religion on the face of the planet that says that. All the other religions are, you put all your works together, and then you can get the life you want, and then you can get the life you want later. Christianity says you can try all you can with all you've got, and you will not get the life you want, and you will not have the life you want later. Because it ain't about you. It's about God. It's a weird religion. Again, I've said this before, Christianity should be the first religion you dismiss if you're trying to consider which religion you should commit your life to, because it's different from all the rest. Christianity is radically different than the rest of the religions. So think about that this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for the blessing that you give of life. Creation itself is a blessing to humanity that you put us here. And Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, that you came as the great Yahweh who saves so that we might know that there's a future and a hope for us in a world that just seems like it's passing away because it is. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to persevere. I know there are people here who are hurting. I know there are people here who are doing really well and they're not in a time necessarily that feels like perseverance, but they're persevering even in the joy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us what perseverance really looks like here this morning and that we would find hope, not just from the circumstances, but true hope from you, the power of your Holy Spirit, and the truth of your word. In your name we pray, amen. So Revelation 13, 16, so back up from 14 last week, it said, and he, the beast, requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. This is called the mark of the beast that people talk about. The beast and the mark is the beast's name or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. The one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of man and his number is 666. And we looked at this last week. The number 666 is an English translation. In the Old Testament and in the Greek, numbers typically had letters attached to them, like in Roman numerals, for example. So this whole 666 thing that we put on everything and we freak out about, you don't need to be freaked out about. Because it's, it's not, that's not what it is. Now, there are people who use 666 as like a declaration of, I'm anti-God, and that's exactly what the beast is. The whole point of the beast is that he's making a public declaration, and anybody who takes this mark understands that they are making a public declaration, you ready for this? to survive and persevere in their body and in their life instead of persevering in eternal life and in Christ. It's not like going to be a trick, okay? It's not like you're accidentally going to get the mark of the beast. That's not what this is. When you read it, it's absolutely clear when we read Scripture. There's even a debate on whether we'll still be here. Will the church be taken away before this time or not? We don't know. Either way, you'll know this is the mark of the beast. 
it will be clear to you that this is the mark. Here is the wisdom. Think about it. Is this person asking you to persevere in God's name for laying down your life? Or is this person saying, look, if you truly want to have your best life now, if you truly want to persevere in life, then here's what you need to do pragmatically so that you can order your life and get what you long for. That's the mark of the beast. That's the way of man. That's how you're sold everything every day. Every day the sales pitch is you deserve. This will fix it. Do this. Do that. Every day it's mankind telling you how to find joy, how to persevere in this life, how to get through this life, how to cope in this life. And God in heaven is saying, be careful. Don't listen to them. Check what they're saying. And then we keep falling for it. Thankfully, there's grace in Christ because we'd all be a mess if that wasn't the case. And it's going to go badly, we'll find out in this next chapter. It's going to go very badly for those who choose perseverance in this world instead of perseverance in Christ and perseverance for eternity. There is a choice being made here. When you make this choice, I choose the beast, it is the hardening of the heart that the scripture talks about, which we'll see in a minute. Those people never repent again. There is a sense of hardening of the heart that's like, I choose this. I choose to go against God. I choose to go against his word. I choose to go against his church. I choose to go against it all because I've got it figured out and I'm going to persevere. Here's what I want. Here's how I can get what I want. That's what I'm going to do. That is clear as we read through the rest of the scriptures here. In Revelation 14, it says, Then I looked. So John looks. He takes a moment. There's all this mess. There's dragons. There's beasts. There's all this stuff. There's this tension of, oh my goodness, what is going on in the world? What's getting ready to happen? This is terrifying. And John says, but then I looked. If you're going to persevere, you've got to make a choice to look in the right direction. You can't look at the past. You can't look far off into the future. You've got to look right now and say, what am I going to set my eyes on? The Bible says to set your eyes on Christ. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's where we set our gaze. That's what we've got to look to. Anything else, we're going to start getting manipulated and off track. He says, if you want to persevere, look at the person of Jesus, the Yahweh who saves, who was promised in the Old Testament, who came in the New Testament, and all of human history looks back to to come again. That's what this says. So John looks, and then it says, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So there's this moment where he's like, okay, I don't know if there's any hope in the world. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the mount in Jerusalem, and it's like, there he is. I thought I wasn't going to be able to persevere. I thought this was going to be awful. I thought the beast was going to win. There's no hope, and all of a sudden, he appears, and it's not just him. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So now you see the distinction. There are those that have the beast written on their arm or on their hand and on their forehead. They've chosen to say, okay, I pledge allegiance to the beast. I pledge allegiance right here. And again, the arm and the forehead are your works and your mind. This may not be a literal sense of like, there it is. It might be. I don't know. There's a lot of symbolism in Revelation that we just don't know the answers to. 
But the idea of the hands and the head are communicating the heart and the actions. It's the mind and it's the works. That's what it's communicating. Now there's a group of people that say, no, 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 no. We've chosen with our mind to accept God and accept who he is and accept who he sent. It says nothing about their hands. Why? Because these people aren't looking to use their hands to get stuff done. They know that here is the source, right here. That that's what gets everything done, not this. That's why it's different. They have fully surrendered their mind to Christ. They fully surrendered this. And then it says, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Again, those are sounds that get your attention. How many of you have ever had a situation where you've been in a flood or you've had a water leak in your home? And you hear the sound of cascading waters. This happened to me when we lived in West Lafayette. Indiana. We lived in a home and we had purchased it and we'd fixed it up. And a few days after I got the basement completely done and new carpet completely laid in the basement, we had a hundred year flood in West Lafayette. It was so bad that I woke up and our creek was at our back door almost that was in the back and the creek was far away. And I'm like, okay, that's scary, and I'm praying, God, please don't let the creek come in my basement because it'll just fill it up like it's a big tub, and the Lord answered. What I didn't think to pray was, Lord, please don't let the water table be so high that water shoots up out of the floor through the cracks in the floor like a faucet. That I didn't pray, so we came home one night, and there's water shooting up through the carpet. Because the amount of pressure in the ground, it had to go somewhere and it found every crack and crevice. And literally my house is filling up and you could hear the cascading water. And it was like, this isn't good. And I got to redo my basement. It was wonderful. I wish I could say I had joy. I just had to persevere and I should have persevered with joy. Thankfully, we had a good insurance company. They covered it. We were able to get it done. But When you hear something like this, when you hear thunder, when you hear water running, and you're like, I'm not supposed to hear water running right now, that gets your attention, right? And it changes you from that point forward. How many of you have ever had water running like a toilet or a faucet, and you forgot about it, and then you get your water bill the next month? I guarantee you, you will be checking every faucet and every toilet the rest of your life. Like, like every time you go to bed, you'll be like, okay, I gotta go listen to okay. No toilets, no cask, we're good, I'm going to bed. Like, it'll, it'll, it'll impact you the rest of your life. This is getting the attention of the world. And then it says, the sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. What weird sounds are this? I don't know about you, in our house, with our kids growing up, there was always music going on. Oftentimes, three different people singing three different songs all the time, like constant. And so this idea of a song, it's like you you hear it coming. Even to this day, when our daughter comes home, we hear her coming up the driveway because she's singing at the top of her lungs whatever she was listening to in the car. And all the neighbors know she's home, right? It's the sound of harpists playing on, there's the harp, it's coming, right? Right? 
It gets your attention. And then look at this. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Those are all the picture of heaven that we looked at in the first few chapters of Revelation. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It's interesting that in the midst of all this chaos and beasts and dragons and all this stuff going on, listen to me, tune in. God gives his people a song to sing, not a sword to swing, not a bow to shoot, nothing. He gives them a song. If you're going to persevere, you've got to learn to sing in the midst of the mess. And there is something incredibly powerful about choosing the song over looking at my circumstances and panicking and saying, I will choose to sing about who God is. And it doesn't matter if, if no one else understands the song. It doesn't matter if no one else is singing, I will sing. I will worship when it seems like everything's falling apart. That is a key indicator of someone who knows what perseverance is. They're not looking for a fix. They're looking for something they can praise and sing to God. That's different, folks. That's not how our world works. That's not how other religions work. And we've got Christians who are constantly running around to the next book off the shelf to fix their problem when they probably need to just ask the Lord for a song to just sing. God, help me sing today. Help me worship today. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what's going to go on. But I know your people are constantly singing a song. And it's loud and everyone knows. Guys, that's what makes Christianity and the ancient religion of Judaism and Israel so different. His people were constantly singing songs. All the time singing to a God and the world around them were like, why are you so happy? Why are you singing? Why do you, why do you sing those songs? Even some of the psalms that were sung were like judgment psalms, right? God, I pray that you smash the teeth out of the wicked. Can we sing that? Like, is that it? Well, they did in the Old Testament. Like, maybe we'll sing that someday. Maybe once Jason will write a song and you'll be like, yeah, let's smash their teeth out. You'd be like, did we just sing that? <laughs> yes, we did, because it's in the Bible. <laughs> like, we have a song to sing to the world that declares the reality of the world around us. And the world sometimes isn't going to understand the song, and other believers sometimes are not going to understand how in the world you still have joy, how in the world you still sing in the midst of the mess you're in. That's what this example is. God lays it out. He says, Jesus appears on Mount Zion. This is his second coming. And you're thinking, there's 144,000 men. Oh, it's wartime. And they're just singing. That's weird. I thought like now you're going to go kill a beast or two. Like, let's go do this. No, we're just standing on Mount Zion singing. It's great. But we can't really understand your song. I know, it's fine. Just listen. You see this all the way through the scriptures. We'll see this when Jesus comes back in the end of Revelation. When he's given the, when he comes back and we're given a robes and horses and we ride behind him. And it says, we don't get given weapons. We're given a robe and a horse. And all we're going to be doing is cheering him on behind him. Singing, yelling, praising. That's all we're going to do. He's going to do all the work. And we're like, yeah, that's it. 
We have no other responsibility but that. Let me ask you, if you're going to get ready to do this in heaven and get ready to have a robe and a horse someday, you might want to start practicing it now by faith because it takes faith. It's hard to sing when there are beasts everywhere. I promise. It is difficult to persevere in the midst of the tragedy. It's difficult. It takes faith. Not, well, I feel like singing. No, I'm, I'm going I'm to sing God's praise even in the midst of the mess. I remember when my sister was passing away. I wasn't there. I had to leave. My family talks about this to this day. But as my sister, who was on morphine, she was battled cancer 10 years, and her body was riddled. She looked like a Holocaust victim. It was so awful to see her in her last days writhing and just trying and having visions of heaven and talking to grandma and grandpa, weird stuff. I don't know what was true, what was, it was strange. But how awesome it was for my family to say, hey, Matt, you weren't here, but one of the things we got to do is we just sang as your sister took her last breaths. And they gathered in the room around her bed and they sang as they watched her chest move for the last time. And they just sang praises to God as she passed into eternity. Guys, that is, that is beautiful. Like that, we're all going to have to go out. Man, I want to go out like that. With people around you singing the praise of God because they know you know the Lord. They know that Jesus waits on the other side. That you've persevered and it's time to go home. You've battled this 10 years. It's go. Man. Talk about amazing. Talk about a witness and a testimony to the world. The neighbors hearing people sing and being like, that woman is dying. And we hear singing coming from the house. What is going on? That's the beauty of our gospel. It's the beauty of the reality and the truth of scripture over every other religion. It goes on to talk about these people, these 144,000, which we looked at before, who were Jews, who before the great tribulation have been called out. And it says, these are the ones not defiled with women, for they have kept their virginity. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Again, we're not certain who these people are going to be, when they're going to come, or how they're going to come. But here's some things we can find out. They're not defiled with women. In other words, they were celibate. It's not talking about women are terrible, stay away from them. That's not what this is saying. This is saying these were men who chose to be celibate with their life so they didn't have the responsibility of a wife and a marriage and they could fully give themselves to the celibacy of serving God and following the Lamb wherever he went because they didn't have any responsibilities at home. That's not everyone's call. There's a great multitude we read about last week. There's 144,000, and there's the great multitude around the 144,000, right? Great multitude being millions and millions and millions and millions. It's a specific call. It's the call Paul had on his life. He was celibate. Peter was not. Even though the Catholic Church says Peter was celibate, if you read the Scriptures twice, it refers to Cephas, and they say, well, that's a different Cephas. That's another Peter. Whatever. The first, he goes to his mother's house, his mother-in-law's home. If he has a mother-in-law, it means he was married. 
And then you think, well, maybe she died and he lives celibate the rest of his life. And then Paul says in the New Testament, while Paul's traveling celibate to share the gospel, Paul says, and you know that Cephas, Peter, travels with his wife. Oh, it's right there in Scripture. So it's not wrong to be married. It's not wrong to be celibate. But these people had said, I, listen, I'm going to choose to give myself fully to raising up spiritual children, not physical ones. I'm going to give myself fully to, to follow the Lamb wherever He goes without any hindrance. Again, this is a call. And then it says these are the ones that were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. In other words, these are the first fruits of the last people that are going to be saved that we see here in the book of Revelation. This is the first, like this group comes in and are saved. It's like anybody else. And the Bible talks about first fruits a lot. There's a festival of first fruits that the children of Israel were to celebrate that every time they had their crops come in, they were to dedicate the first fruits of every crop Every animal, they were to dedicate the first of that fruit to the Lord. He gets the best. He gets the first. He gets, so that you're saying, God, I'm not going to trust in what you've given me. I give you the first fruits because I believe and trust that you'll bring more. So these people are saying, we can fully give our lives. We can fully surrender ourselves to, to the lamb. We can, and the lamb being slain, which means if we follow a slain lamb, what's probably going to happen to us? You're following a lamb that gets slain. What's probably going to happen to you? You're going to get slain. It's going to be difficult. But they're the first fruits. They're the ones that say, hey, God says, look, if I can save these people, I can save you. It's the first fruits that are given. Then it says, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. In other words, these people were transformed by the Holy Spirit. They didn't lie and manipulate to try to keep their life and get what they wanted in life. They told the truth. They surrendered it, and whatever the consequences were of that truth, they did it. No lying, no manipulation, no trying to play the political card. Nope, we're just going to speak it. And as a result, when people tried to blame them, they're like, we didn't lie. We told you the truth. There's no blame. These are people that have been set apart by God. Listen, this is what God wants for us. God wants this for you and I. He wants us to sing a song. He wants us to not be defiled by the things of this world, but to trust in him. He wants us to follow him. He's got a call on our life. He's redeemed us. We can't redeem ourselves. And he's made us the first fruits in our generation to tell the rest of this generation and those to come after us, there is a God in heaven who's going to come again. And he's come the first time so that you might know him. It's, it's no different. It's just different as in this is kind of the final before the final judgment. Look at what James says. James says this. By his choice, that's God's choice, Jesus, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth, not a lie, the truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. You are a part of the first fruits of God. Some of you know that. Because some of you are the first people 
to surrender to God in your family. And you feel what first fruits feels like, and it's hard. It's hard to give your life and give your best. It's hard to tell the truth and know that you're going to have family push back. It's difficult. But you should rejoice that God has called you. That you responded to his call is a miracle. It is no small thing. Then he says, my dearly loved brothers, James, the apostle says, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You can be as mad about stuff as you want. You can be as fired up about stuff as you want. It doesn't help anything get done. (laughs) It doesn't make you more right just because you're more mad. Now, should we get angry? Absolutely. God got angry. Jesus threw over temples in the, I mean, made a whip, sat through a whole church service and made a whip the whole church service. And then he took the whip out, whipped people, threw over temples and made everybody leave. Yeah, Jesus did that. Can you imagine him sitting there and making that? Like, you're watching him like, that looks like a whip. I told this story before, but I can just see Peter, like the nudging Peter, Peter, ask him if it's a whip. I am not asking. I get in trouble all the time. You ask. And he's just putting a whip together. You're like, that is so, we've never seen him make weaponry before. This is different. And probably not angry, just got up and said, okay, it's time. And he's just, whoop, beam. But we see him like, probably just, hey, zeal, zeal for God's house is consuming me right now. Anybody else want to come back in with the right heart? Come on in. But if you got the wrong heart, I'm going to know, and you might just get a whip. I wonder if he took the whole church service to make the whip just to see if maybe the truth would be told and he could put it down. And as he was making it, he realized with every brain, like, there's another lie. There's another lie. There's another lie they told. I'm going to have to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to make this whip. I don't want to use it. You see, we look at anger and we think anger proves something. That, oh, they're righteous. Not necessarily. It's just an emotion like any other emotion. And you can be as angry as you want. You can fight as much as you want. But if you want to be righteous, it requires your surrender like these people we saw. And then it says, therefore, ridding yourself of all moral filth and evil, just like these guys did. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. That's the head, right? The seal, the seal that we have that reminds us of the truth. It saves you. It's the word that saves you. Who's the word? Jesus. That's what first John, or John says in his first chapter. He says, the word was God and the word was with God. He's the word. And then he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, we've created a Christian culture of hearers without perseverance in doing. We have more Christian books than the world's ever known. I have chosen to not obey more than all the books in the world. Like, we don't need another book to teach us. We just need to do it. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to, and say, okay, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to live by the truth. Doesn't matter what anybody, like, that's what we need to do. Every book just steals from the Bible and rewrites it. It's like it's right there. And he says, look, here's the key. If you're someone that keeps hearing and not doing, that is what the Bible defines as the hardening of the heart. You will harden your heart if you keep doing that. 
And you say, well, I struggle with sin. Great. Do you repent? Like, like do you sin and then you come to God and be like, I did it. I'm so sorry, Lord. I throw myself at your mercy. I confess to my brother. I ask for accountability. If you're doing that, you're not hardening your heart. Praise God. You're softening your heart. You're allowing humility to enter in. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about doing what God's will is, which is repentance, trusting in grace, and obedience. He says, because if anyone is the hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself. Hello, self, right? He goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Did I have a booger hanging out my nose? I don't remember. Oh, well, I'll just let it hang there. No, go back and check the mirror. (laughs) But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, I love that James says this. James is a book that some people say, oh, it's all about works. No, he's saying that the law is what actually sets us free. See, we look at the law and we see it as a burden. It's something I don't have to do anymore because of what Jesus did for me. And James says, no, the law is good. Don't just do it to get something. See, that's our problem. We look at the Old Testament law, or we look at the laws of the Bible, and it's always a trade. It's always a, I do and I get. I do and I get. I do and I get. And God's like, no, you just do. And someday you'll get. Maybe. When I tell you. Like, that's, that's what he's saying. You have the freedom to obey and to do what God says and not have to worry about all the world worries about. Is this paying off? Is this going to work? I don't know. Should I do it? Uh, Just obey. Just look at the word. If you don't understand it, ask for help. How do I understand this Old Testament law? How do I understand what to do here? So should I go buy a spade and have it in my truck so that when I got to use the bathroom on a road trip, I stop by the side of the road, I walk out in a field, dig a hole, poop in it, and cover it up because that's what Deuteronomy says to do? The principle is you don't want your sewage in your camp. That's the Old Testament principle. It's a principle we practice really well today. We have toilets that carry all of our sewage outside our camp to be treated. We've figured this out. We're obeying. Every time you flush a toilet, you're obeying the Old Testament. Whoosh. Thank you, Jesus. Whoosh. Thank you, Jesus. I obey you. It's outside the camp. Praise the Lord. But we don't see it that way because we think we're so smart and we figured it out when the law is just good. It's just good. But we don't care about it. Why don't we care about it? Because we don't, we want to take the legalistic law and say it means this and I'm going to do it and there you go and then we expect something and we don't get it. We go, see that didn't work. Well, maybe the intent of the law was what God was trying to teach you, and you're going to the letter of the law, and it's not working. Maybe it's not supposed to work right now. It'll work one day. See, these are the things we have to do. And then he says, look. He says, you look into the perfect law of freedom. It sets you free. It's not a burden to obey God. It's like, oh, I'm free to not have the pressure of obeying God because he has grace on me and he loves me and he forgives me. Ha, this is wonderful. And then he says, look, and perseveres in it. You got to keep persevering in it. And it's not a forgetful here, but one who does good works. This person will be happy, blessed in what he does. That's what the word means, happy in what he does. 
don't know about you, but most of modern Christianity is teaching people to be miserable doing what God says. Oh, gotta get them to have a quiet time. Oh, it's so hard following you, Jesus. Try any other relationship in the world and see how that goes. Wake up every morning and look at your wife and go, oh, you're still here. Man, okay, I'm going to serve you today. It's going to be really hard, but I love you. Look at your kids and like look at them and be like, oh, man, you guys make messes. I don't even know what to do with you children, but I love you. We laugh, but that's how we've been taught with God because we don't see his law as good. We don't have the proper response. And then he says, if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. See, we always think of controlling the tongue, are you ready for this, as not saying certain things. Controlling the tongue is singing a song when you don't want to sing. That's what the 144,000 were doing. I will let my tongue be controlled by who God is and the worship of him, not by the mess of my problems and the world around me. This tongue gets God's glory, period. Even when I don't feel like it. Let me tell you, yesterday, I had a rough day yesterday of this. God taught me a lesson. It was on my third trip of a truck full of leaves to get rid of. I hate raking leaves. I do. It is, it is I just... I, especially leaves that I knew when we planted the trees we'd have a lot of leaves and I didn't want to plant the trees because I knew what happens when you plant trees. They have leaves. They're going to get bigger. The leaves don't get less every year. They get more every year. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm thinking the whole day. I spent eight hours raking leaves. Four truckloads. Like, you know, I wrap them in this tarp and then I go dump them. I mean, this, listen, the first two truckloads, my heart was not here. My heart was like, I mean, but that third truckload I was taking to get rid of, and I'm thinking, gas is $5 a gallon. Like, I'm thinking of all this in my head, right? That third truckload, it was like God just said, thorns and thistles? Did, did I not tell you this is, like, aren't trees beautiful? Aren't they wonderful? Would you like to be grateful for me for making trees? I mean, I'm literally listening to the radio, and I'm like, I turn the radio up louder because I do not want to hear that from God right now. I literally, I'm like, Nyeh. I'll turn it to a Christian station, try to sing a worship song. And then some terrible song comes on. It's not even theologically correct. I'm like, I got to shut that off. And I am wrestling for the next 20 minutes driving of like, God, give me just joy and gratitude. Let me sing, to, like, I don't just want to persevere and say I did it. I, I genuinely want my, and I am exhausted right now. Like I was so tired. And I'm wrestling over leaves. This isn't anything significant, it's just leaves. <laughs> Think about when you're going through something significant in your life. It's hard. And God says, look, control your tongue. The self-talk that we do to each other and we do to ourselves, we talk ourselves down, control it. That's not what God says about you. If you are his child, you're his child. He loves you, he cares for you, and he wants to discipline you because he has something better for you. Not because he's mad, not because I'm gonna get you, he loves you. Stop the self-talk. I've got it too, we gotta stop. We gotta be like this 144,000 because that's what's going to persevere you through life. 
When everything around you is talking you down and it's a mess, you've got to say, Lord, by faith, even though I don't feel like it, even though the circumstances don't make sense, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to persevere in you. He goes on, he says, then I saw another angel flying overhead. So John sees this angel having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, or language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him Glory, like the 144,000 have been doing. Fear him, like be like, oh, man, he's awesome, he's amazing, and then give him glory. You are awesome because you know the gospel. This angel's going out and declaring the gospel, and for people who don't know it, they should be panicked. For us who know it, we should be like, finally, it's going everywhere. I've been waiting for this day. I've given my life for this moment. Then he says, worship the maker of heaven. Oh, he says, because the hour of judgment has finally come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. He says, look around, look at the leaves, look at the trees, look at everything and go, you're the maker of it all. You're awesome. That's what you do in the midst of judgment and a mess getting ready to come. And beasts and people being slain and all kinds, that's what you do. Look at what Psalm 16 says. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. We listened to a speaker this week who came and spoke at God's Not Dead, and this was one of his principles. He said, look, God is constantly trying to get our attention. The cosmos, everything, all of science declares there's a creator. There's an image bearer. That's what this angel is going out and doing. This angel's going out and saying, there is a God who made everything. Now, do you want to figure out who he is? Because he's standing on the mountain in Jerusalem. You might want to go check him out. This is the overall gospel. There is a God who created everything, and we got to say, okay, if there's a God who created it all, if it's like he's the one, right? Intelligent design. Everything's been designed intelligently. For things to happen like we think by chance is unheard of. I won't go into all the talk, but if you go just look at just the random, if gravity's off just a I mean, the tiniest minuscule, if gravity changes the tiniest minuscule from what it is, all the solar system compacts on itself or it flies apart and can't be created. It, everything is so fine-tuned and perfectly done. It's like chance? That's like saying that my iPhone was just chance. It just all came together. Sand created glass. You look at me like, no, someone designed that. Probably a lot of people. This didn't happen by chance. It's different. No different with God, and the Psalms declare that, and that's what this angel is declaring. He's saying, this is your last chance. This angel is going out and says, this is the last chance. Look at creation. Look at the world. I'm telling you, last chance. Goes on and says this in Romans. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what the Angels declaring, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. 
You don't have to be, you don't have to work to a certain level. You just have to commit the head. Remember, these guys committed their head. They didn't know what they were going to do with their hands. They're just standing on the mountain singing. We don't know what we're doing yet, but hey, we're going to give you praise and our head's involved. He says, everyone who believes, first to the Jew, that means God brought the gospel to the Jews so that we could have it. He's got to start somewhere. So he started with Abraham, right? Noah. He started with these men. By the way, they were disastrous men. So that's hope for you and me. If he could save Noah and save Abraham, we can be saved. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. That's the whole picture. We look at all of humanity, faith to faith, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. So when James says, be righteous and do all these things, it's by faith you do that. It's saying, God, I'm going to trust you when everything in me, all of my emotions, everything says to do the opposite. I'm going to choose to, by faith, say you are who you say you are. The world is the way it, it, you say it is, and that's what I'm going to trust, even when everything doesn't feel that way. You will never be sold to again wrongly. You'll never fall for another marketing scheme if you just do that. <laughs> What's true of the world? What's true of God? I don't need that. That, that buying that's not going to fix anything. He goes on and he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, they don't believe in God, they're godless, and they don't want to do what's right. And so what means is they're going to suppress any kind of truth that you bring. Just like this angel tells the truth and more suppression comes. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. That's creation. For his invisible attributes, that is eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Those are the two things you need to think about. If you're going to persevere, you've got to glorify God and you've got to find gratitude in your life. You can't glorify God without gratitude, and you can't have gratitude if God's not the center of the gratitude. They go hand in hand. If you've got a gratitude problem, then you have a glory problem. You're trying to bring glory to yourself, which is why you can't be thankful. You're mad at God. He hasn't given you what you wanted. Instead of being grateful that he's giving you everything you could ever want, life itself. And the same is on the other side. If you're just walking around grateful for everything, and you're just taking, 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 then you're not asking, does this really glorify God? Or am I just being grateful so I can like make an excuse to God? Well, you gave it to me, the woman you gave me, as Adam said in Genesis. They're two sides of the same coin. It said, instead, their thinking became nonsense. Again, the head. And their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and the reptiles. That's the 666. Therefore, God delivered them over to the cravings of their heart. And it's really critical. If you want to see if you're moving over to the craving of the heart, if you want to see a culture, have they really decided they're done with God? Look at what they do with sex. Because sex is the declaration of I get to use you, you get to use me, no boundaries. It is the ultimate act of using and giving of people our wills, that there is no other act. That's why rape is so horrible. Because that's not yours to take. He goes on and he says, 
When you see a culture that's going there, you can know they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they're worshiping and serving something created instead of the creator who's praised forever, amen. And most of the time we worship ourselves, which is why we fill up our desire tanks for whatever we want. We don't let God have control of our phones and over our calendars and we don't. See, you're going to persevere in something. The question is, is it going to be you're going to persevere in sin or are you going to persevere in righteousness? You'll persevere doing something. Something will get the perseverance in your life. Something will keep with you the rest of your life. I don't want it to be sin. I want it to be God. He goes on to say this. Then a second angel, so there's one, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen, who made all the nations drink the wine of her Sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Again, they've been turned over. The gospel's being declared, and the world is saying, we don't want it. Now, we'll talk about Babylon more. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it right now. But it says, Babylon the Great. Babylon in the scriptures is always a sign. It means gate of God. That's what the term means, gate of God. In other words, Babylon is always the false god. It's the false hope. It's the idea that if you want to get to God, you got to go through us. you got to go through Babylon. We're the way to go to get to God. And it says the great Babylon has fallen. Well, well how do we know if, if it's the great Babylon? Well, all the nations are drinking of the wine of her sexual immorality. The idea of take what you want. You be in control. It's all about you. I would argue There has never been a nation in the history of the world that has promoted and sent sexual immorality around the world more than the United States of America. We created the internet, folks. There are countries shutting down the internet because they're so tired of their young people being grabbed by sexual immorality. And they don't even know Jesus. And then we criticize and think, oh, they're destroying free speech. Be careful. We think we're the greatest nation that ever existed? Please. There's only one great nation, and it isn't here yet. It's coming. Now, am I supposed to serve in the Babylon I live in? That's exactly what we read last week in Jeremiah. I have to serve here. I give my life here. I hope that Chinese people do that in China. I hope that, you know, people in Tongo do that there. I hope that people in Australia give themselves to the people of Australia so they know Jesus. We we are to give ourselves in the midst of living in Babylon. We looked at it last week. We plant gardens. We build houses. We give sons and daughters in marriage. We pray for the benefit of the city. We tell them the gospel. We tell them about who God is. That's That's our job. God's deported us to these places, but now he's delivering us out. Finally, the great Babylon will fall and we can be delivered out of it. Let me ask you, do you want to be delivered out? Most of us are trying to keep a hold of this American thing. I want to be delivered out of it. I'm glad I live in America. I'm glad for the freedom I have. I don't deny any of those things. I know where they came from. I understand our history. I was a history major. I get all that. But at the end of the day, We fit the description of the great Babylon better than any country that's ever existed. And we'll see that as we look through scripture. Now, does that mean that when America falls, it's the end? No, there could be an even worse Babylon than us that comes someday. I don't know. 
But last time I checked, when the founders were creating this country, there were certain founders that were venomously opposed and said, we will not put the name of Jesus anywhere in any of our founding documents. Did you know that? Thomas Jefferson wrote his own New Testament and took out every reference to Jesus being the Son of God and every miracle Jesus did. It's called the Jeffersonian Bible. Do we have some principles that are biblical that help us, that are great? Yeah. But every nation does. China has some really great principles on being together and working together to accomplish great things as a nation. We don't have that. They do. So they got a picture of God. They got some truths, but there's a lot of lies, just like for our country. We have a lot of truths, but there's a lot of lies that we carry with us, and we've got to be very careful. And again, it's not my job, listen up, to create another Babylon, which is what everybody wants to do. Oh, well, we'll do it better. No, you won't. You'll corrupt it just as bad and end up in the same big mess that everybody else has ended up in until Jesus comes back. And then a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and the image and receives a mark on the forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with a fire of sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. This is called hellfire and brimstone preaching right there. I didn't write the book. He did. This is the reality of what's going to happen to those who won't listen to the angel who tells the gospel. These angels are coming and saying, please repent. They're not listening. And he says, you're going to drink of the wine of God's wrath. Who was the person who drank God's wrath for us? Jesus. And he said that he's going to take the wrath, the cup, in the Old Testament, cups were always a sign of judgment, almost always. It was the idea of this cup of judgment. But a few times in the Old Testament, it talked about that that would lead to the cup of salvation. And so Jesus takes the cup of judgment and he makes it the cup of salvation for those who trust in his judgment. It's beautiful. Here, these people are going to receive the full cup of judgment with no salvation, no hope. It's going to be poured out and drunk up, and it's going to be awful. And they are going to burn forever, the Bible says. Do you realize that in excavations that they've done in the Middle East, trying to find where maybe the old cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are, which God said he completely destroyed, that when they dig, they actually find sulfur and brimstone. They find pebbles that you literally can put a match to and set on fire, and it just burns up. And they have no idea how it got there, where it came from. There's no, the volcanic activity doesn't make sense. They cannot figure out how this got leveled and destroyed and there's all this sulfur and brimstone around. Listen, the guy who made the elements can make elements and send them. And so you think, oh, how could this happen? It's, it's happened before. And look at what he says. After all this, he says this. This demands the perseverance of the saints. All of what we just read in Revelation, all of what you just saw, all of what we talked about, God says this demands our perseverance. You've got to keep going. Don't quit. Keep, keep 
keep going. You know it's going to get bad. You know it's going to go from bad to worse. Like, keep going. Have children. Whoa, that's such a wicked world. Doesn't matter. It's always going to be wicked. Keep having kids. Be single and celibate and give yourself to God if that's what he's called you to do. Live where God has you. Then he goes on and he says, I love this, who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. You want to know if you're persevering, do you have faith in Jesus? Do you keep his commands? Do you even care what his commands say? Do you read your Bible and want to know, God, what do you want me to do? Who, who are you? How can I? Well, his commands are we're supposed to show him gratitude. We're supposed to glorify him. We're supposed to sing to him. We're supposed to, like, all the commands are there. We just don't like them. I don't want to sing a song. I want a sword because there's a person I want to kill. Give me a sword, please. I don't want to sing to them. It doesn't work. I sing to them and they just get mad at me and then they want to kill me. I want to fight back. I'm, there, done. My song wins. He goes on and he says, you read further. Colossians says, you know, are you a saint? It says the perseverance of the saints. And we think of the saints in Catholicism being these special people. At the beginning of every one of Paul's letters and Jude's letter, when you read the letters, here's what he says. To the saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, at Colossia, at Philippi, at, 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 who are faithful brothers, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. Every one of Paul's letters start this way. He's saying you are a saint if you know Jesus. You have been made a saint. You've been sanctified. You're a saint. Have you ever told yourself that when the enemy's attacking you and lying to you and you're scum, you're nothing, you sin, you're awful. No, I'm not. I am a saint. God has saved me. He has purified me. And I'm not going there again. I'm a saint before God. And he extends his grace and his peace to me. And I don't want to bring war into my life. So I'm going to trust in his grace and his peace. It's going to come someday. I am a saint, period. I am a saint who happens to sin, not a sinner. You are not a sinner. You are a saint who happens to sin. That's different. He goes on in Ephesians, says, together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heaven. Your home is in heaven. We're temporary here. We didn't get service started on time. You want to know why? Because we keep having to set up and tear down the tent. And our tent has issues. We set it up and there's a rip in it. Got to fix that. The pole breaks. Oh, got to put the pole in. Oh, crud. There's snakes. Oh, there's an ant farm. Oh, like we got to take care of all this stuff from setting up and tearing down our tents. That's how they did it in the Old Testament. You think, oh, now that we built the temple, it's all going to be better, right? It was worse once they built the temple when you read the Old Testament. It doesn't fix anything. Matter of fact, then they started trying to protect Jerusalem and it's all about Jerusalem now and they stopped going out into the world because we've got to protect what we got. We don't really have anything to protect. Like, set up and tear down. Okay, here we go. Like, <laughs> what are we protecting today? Not, I don't know. Our doors open half the time. People just walk in, take our stuff, and leave. Like, I, I'm not saying one is better than another. God wants us to have homes. He tells us build homes in Babylon. I'm not against that. I'm just telling you, for us, this is a reality. We live this out. And then he says, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us. Do you really believe that God wants to show you his grace and his kindness? 
Or do you think God's just in heaven doing this to you all the time? Because if you think that's God, you've got an enemy that's convinced you of a lie. And it needs to stop. Stop. God is trying to show you his grace and his kindness. And to recognize grace, you have to see sin. To recognize kindness, you have to see judgment. I deserved this and God was very kind not to kill me. Praise the Lord. Then he goes on and he says, look at this. He wants to display that and he says, for you are saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by faith through grace. You're saved by God's grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. In other words, you can't earn it. It's God's gift. God says, here's the gift. You want it? The angels are flying out saying, hey, the gospel's, hey, God's getting ready to come. Anybody? It's a free gift. And when you take this gift, it will change your life forever because it's an exchange of I give up everything I have so that I can have this gift above all. He says, it's not from works so that no one can boast. You can't say, look at how righteous and good I am. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul says, it's all about grace so that you can work. Well, then it's all about works. No, it's not. It's not about works. It's all about understanding his riches and his grace so that when he has your head, you know what happens to your hands? They change. No longer are you thinking about how to do what you want with these hands and what you want to get and who you want to have. And wah, You're going, I want what God wants. You get blinders on. You're focused. Then he says, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. He's prepared it for you. James says this, Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, again, that's the head, who gives all to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. You want wisdom? Go after it. You know, Henry Blackaby did a book. There's a couple of people right now doing this book in the church called Experiencing God. And there's seven points in the book. He says, God is always at work around you. God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that's real and personal. God invites you to become involved in him and the work he is doing. And then he says, God speaks. The wisdom you're looking for, God speaks by the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, through prayer, through the church, and through circumstances. Circumstances are the last not the first. You go through Bible, prayer, word, church, then you go to circumstances. We start with circumstances and then go chase the Bible. And then we pray prayers based on the circumstances. Then we go to the church and tell them our circumstances and now the church is going to fix our circumstances. Stop. He goes on and says, then I heard a voice from heaven saying, right. So now John's writing. The dead who die in the Lord from now on are happy. <laughs> I, I read that. I'm like, really? Like, I'm happy? Actually, yeah. They're happy because they see what's going on and the devastation and the mess, and they're glad to be out of it. They're happy that God took them, and they don't have to live through this disaster. Look at that. And then he says, yes, says the Spirit, let them rest from their labors, for their works follow them. They've been faithful. Philippians says this, Paul writes, for me, living is Christ. I'm going to live like he lived. I want to do what he did. And dying is gain. Now, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. 
I literally told Joanna when I stopped by her house yesterday, I looked at her and I go, if God takes me, I just pray he takes me before the fall. Because if he takes me after the leaves fall and I have to rake and do this all again, I'm going to be like, really? Seriously? Could you not, just a month earlier, just like, like I just could have gone, before, just a little bit. Like I, I told Joanna that right in her driveway. I'm like, I just, I'm like, I won't stand before God and say that. But see, my mind goes there just like yours does. And he says, I'm pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And by the way, as I'm raking leaves, I went into my neighbor's two yards and raked their leaves too. Both of them came out and thanked me. Wow, thanks. I had an opportunity to show grace and kindness to my neighbors. One of the trees was all my leaves in their yard anyway, so it's kind of like, you know, the right thing to do. The other one was not my leaves. He goes on, he says this, then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one, like the Son of Man, was seated on the cloud. So there's this mess, there's these 140,000, then I looked, and with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying in a loud voice. This is like, he's in the sanctuary, and the angel's running out. Like, he's just coming out, he's like, you got to hear this. Like, he's so excited, and he says, The one who is seated on the cloud, use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is the final harvest of souls. This is the last opportunity. This is it. Jesus said it this way in Matthew. He said, Then Jesus went up to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were weary and worn out from raking leaves, like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, sorry. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. The workers are few. There's lots of leaves. There's one guy out there doing it. All these verses are coming to me, and I don't want to hear it yesterday. I'm like, no, no, no. No, no. God's like, what? It's right here. I love you. You get to do this. You get to serve. Isn't it wonderful, Matt? I've given you strength. I've given you breath. I've given you life. He goes on, he says, then he said to his disciples, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Every Sunday we pray that God would send workers to unreached people. Every Sunday we pray that God would reach unreached people groups because it's what our Lord said to do, by faith. And we are his witnesses to go do that in our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Jesus then dismissed the crowds. When he went into the house, his disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. Basically, he gives a parable. There's a bunch of weeds. There's a bunch of wheat. The weeds got sown in with the wheat. And the angels want to come in and rip out all the weeds. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to tear out the wheat. You've got to wait until the end when the final sickle comes and then I'll separate it all. That's what's happening in Revelation. He says, he replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is in the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels, which we are reading about in Revelation. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. We just read about multiple angels being sent out. 
And they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. Do you believe you're going to shine, not because of how good you are, but because of what Jesus has done to make you righteous? Because if you do, it's going to change the way you do life. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. That's you and me. What is viewed as nothing to bring nothing or bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God's given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord, give glory to him. Paul then goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them as he committed the message of reconciliation to us, that we can be right with God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf like the angels that are being sent out, be reconciled to God before it's too late. He made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become right before God, the righteousness of God. We're seeing this happen in Revelation, all this laid out. And then finally, another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the sanctuary, more sickles, more reaping. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vineyard because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung the sickle towards the earth and gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard and then he threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. There's coming a day when God's going to bring it in and he's going to press, he's going to purify everything so it can be made useful. That's what this is representative of. Jesus said he would not drink again of communion wine until the day that I come again. Until the day I finally purify it completely. And you persevere. Joel said this about what we're reading in Revelation. He says, come quickly, all you surrounding nations, gather yourselves, bring down your warriors there, Lord. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is right. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because of the wickedness of the nations is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision. You've got a decision to make. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Let me ask you, how are you persevering this morning? How are you persevering? We're getting ready to sing in just a second. That's where we started this passage. You may not know the song we sing. I don't know what we're singing. I have no idea. I didn't look at the sheet before I got up here. I may not know the song. It may be a new song. And some of you will sit there and be like, this is dumb. I don't know this song. I don't know how to sing this song. Jason uses weird chords, and that bothers me. Right? That is not the proper heart of worship. Like, sing to him. It is the power of God for us to give him glory and honor and worship. It's no small thing. Believe that in the midst of whatever you're going through, there's a God who says, I love you. There's a plan. It's going to happen. There's going to come a day when it's all reaped. Everything's going to be taken care of, but it's not yet. And then lastly, it says, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. 
You thought you were done with angels? There's more angels coming. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like the sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had won the victory over the beast, his image and the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. You are walking on water. Remember when Peter walked on the water and he started to sink because he doubted? There's going to be no doubt for us. We're walking across the sea. And he says, they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the land. They went back and sang a very familiar old song that has endured throughout all of time because Moses had faith and he wrote that song by faith. He trusted God by faith. And we're going to sing the song of the land. That's the law, Moses, and the grace, the lamb, coming together to sing a song about how great both are because that's the way we persevere. Faith in Jesus and loving his commands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that you throughout Scripture have made this clear. No matter how far back in the Old Testament we go, we see these thing, themes, we see these things consistent. And so, Lord, I thank you this morning that we don't have to doubt that you persevered, you paid the price that we couldn't pay. And you've persevered through all of time and history when you could have just gotten rid of us and started over. But because you are a God of your word and your covenants, you're fulfilling those things because of who you are and because of your love for us. Lord, I don't know where people are this morning. I don't know what they're trying to persevere through. But I pray that they would choose in their head, in their mind, to write your name over whatever it is that's going on in their head. Whatever it is they're struggling with, whatever it is that they would place your name on it and say, Jesus is the one. He is the Yahweh who saves. Regardless of how this thing plays out, he's the one that's going to save me. Not the circumstances, not whatever. He's the one who saves. And as a result of that, I pray that they would get serious about truly loving your commands. And not loving them so they can prove some kind of righteousness, but loving the commands because they know they're good and right and they just love you. And they want to do what you ask. They follow you. And so Lord, if someone here this morning has never made that choice, they've heard the angels, they've heard the message of the gospel multiple times, but they've never made that choice to finally surrender and say, I'm done. I surrender. I'm going to stop trying to figure this out and save myself, and I'm going to throw myself completely at the mercy and faith that only God can save me and help me to persevere. I pray today would be that day if they haven't done it. And I pray they would tell somebody that they did it. Because we're going to sing a song. We're going to make announcements. You want us to let people know about the ministry that you're doing to bring people back to you. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that you would give us a new heart and perspective on perseverance. We wouldn't see things as hard and awful and horrible. We would see things as a blessing, happy, to be able to be like you and like you were when you walked the earth. Lord, we thank you that you persevere, that you call us to persevere, and that we have the promise of revelation that says we will persevere with you. We thank you and praise you. In 